Hi everyone, it's Bill Black, the Exit Coach from the Exit Coach Radio Show. You know, one of the biggest questions I get on the show is what exactly goes into a business exit plan and when should I start creating mine? Well, I always tell people that the best time to start was five years ago, but the next best time is now because you never know when you might need it. So we put together a free report that describes what an exit plan is and what you should know. You can get it free by texting exit plan with no spaces to 44222. That's exit plan to 44222. Again, text exit plan to 44222. Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me once again. Hey, uh, it's always great to have guests come back and talk to us and update us about what's going on in their world. And uh, my next guest has been with us before a few times. His name is John Grace, and he's the president of Westlake Financial Advisors. But a lot of people know him by his website, ybpoor.com. And they help take the mystery out of money management. Here it is, win by losing less. Uh, and one of two local wealth managers that it's master certified with independent research company HS Dent Advisors Network. Uh, it's uh, possible that few investment professionals pay for independent research. Uh, their investment services include wealth management, asset management, retirement planning, financial management, risk management, and retirement income. And John's going to talk about uh, his new book and a new service he's, uh, he's offering for for people out there who would be listening. So, John, welcome once again to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Bill. Good to be back with you. John, uh, it's it's kind of a crazy time now for those listening in the future. We're, we're back here in November of 2020. We've just had uh, an election and we don't know the results yet. We're in the midst of COVID. So if you're listening, you know, I, I replay these shows, John. So if, if you're listening like three to five years from now, wow, how did we do? Did we make it? <laughs> I, I wonder. Uh, but but it's, been, it's been kind of a, a bizarre and crazy time and there's a lot to talk about today. So John, let's get to it. What's been going on with you and tell us a little bit more about your firm. Well, you know, what we like to do, Bill, is help people recognize when it makes sense to take your marbles off the table or reposition, okay? And I think what happens so often, and in fact, this is one of the pandemic doctors, Bill, who I thought he put it very well, that the trouble with optimism is that it breeds complacency. And I think that's a true statement. And I think what happens is people are so interested in being so comfortable and putting things back the way they were, they're not prepared for the future. And I it, I think it's useful to at least learn from the Great Depression in the event it might happen again. I think that's a genuine possibility. But let's recognize that uh, on a per capita basis, more Americans became millionaires than the other than any other time in history as a result of the Great Depression. So what it seems to me is for those who didn't hold on to equity, and by the way, uh, it took New York real estate from one source I find 40 years to get back to even after the Great Depression, a 70% loss. We all know the stock market was off 80, 89%. That took 25 years to get back to even. And let's just notice while we're paying attention here that life expectancy for adults in the early 1900s was mid-50s. 
So what does that suggest? Uh, right. It took 20, right. 25 years, yeah, for stocks to come back and for decades for New York real estate to come back. <laughs> Those prices came back long after we were pushing daisies. So to me, it makes sense to kind of look at some of these scenarios, not that they will necessarily repeat themselves, but we might as well act as if so that we're in preparation that way, if not so much shock and awe. And, and, and by the way, that speaks to the work that you do from the standpoint. We all understand that it makes sense to buy low, sell high. But as I say, sometimes we get so complacent, we, we don't get there in time, or we get there when the prices have dropped. And the only way you're going to be able to count that money is if you caught that fish. In other words, you sold that highly appreciated fill-in-the-blank at a time when you could get top dollar, as opposed to waking up and discovering now you have to offer it a bargain, a, a bargain price just to move what it is you, you are able to sell at a higher price. And then I think the, the worst part about that, Bill, is you, you, you live with regret. And, and as I say, when it came to the well-to-do is after 1929, you live with regret for the rest of your life. <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun to me. Good point. Everything goes through cycles. Uh, business values go through cycles. Stock markets go through cycles. You know, everything goes through cycles. The cycles we're at now are kind of bizarre because some of them are natural cycles, John, and some of those have been, uh, let's say, government created, like, for instance, interest rates being at zero once again. Um, yes. And force, forcing a lot of people who normally might say, hey, I'd like to allocate a normal allocation. A lot of advisors would say you should be. 60-40 stocks to bonds or 40-60 or 80-20, whatever, whatever it happens to be. The problem is they, they just can't. These days, it seems like a lot of people have been forced into risky investments because interest rates are so low in other normal investments. You can't make any yield in a bank or a bond. Uh, and so what's an what's a investor to do? The investors that listen to this show are probably business owners age 50 plus, and they don't necessarily, you know, maybe they have 25 years of life left, Certainly, but um, <laughs> they don't want to. Yeah, you don't, don't want to worry about it for twenty-five now. years, right? And, and that's right. where well, you come I, I in, taking kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, I, we, we want to make sure that you can recover, that you don't need a Hail Mary pass. So where we focus is on helping clients discover what kind of loss they could live with. In other words, you know, yeah, if it's standard portfolio, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, but l let me say this first, that when we, um, we, when we talk about losses, many times we just ask investors, are you conservative, moderate, or aggressive? And by the way, this is, a, this is one of our best clients, a, a rocket scientist. He says, well, you know, John, I'm a, I'm a very very conservative investor, and I'm looking at his statement going, uh, Vince, your statement is telling me a different story. You're 85% stocks and 15% bonds. I'm going to believe your statement. I hear you, but I'm going to believe your statement. And then you've uh -huh, got $5 uh -huh. million dollars in four properties, and it's all paid for. So I'm going to submit to you, sir, that you're an aggressive investor. You, you have little to no diversification. So what we want for people who are in those positions is to limit the losses. In other words, let's find out together because you don't know and neither do I for you, what kind of loss you can live with. Is it 8%? Can you live with a 40% loss? If it is the case that maybe you went through a 40% loss, but the next time you'd like to limit it to an 8% loss, let's do two things. Go back to see how your portfolio did, first quarter 2019, fourth quarter 2018, 2008. And in many cases, particularly when it comes to 2008, people go, geez, Mark was off 37, my account was off 42. That was okay then. 
but I'm going to start taking income. I don't need that to happen again. All right. So now you know, in this case, example, you know, it's 8%. Now let's see if we can prepare a portfolio, run it backwards in reality to see how it performed. Oh, look, it was off seven, uh, as an example. Well, that's better than what we expected. That's my point. Let's make sure that, one, you define what kind of loss you can live with, and then, two, can we design the portfolio so that it might perform within your loss parameters. So I, I can't tell you how important that is. And the second piece of the puzzle is diversify unlike you've ever diversified before. That's what I'm saying. So many people are so comfortable with the way things are and they want them always to go back. But if we look at some of the institutions and the endowments, Yale Endowment as an example, Bill, what I count are seven different asset classes. And the the last time I looked, yeah, the highest percentage was less than 18%. Are you kidding me? Oh, but there's more. The exposure to U.S. stocks, last time I looked, 3%. I didn't say 30. I said 3. Uh, how about corporate bonds? How about 4%? 15%, as I recall, to internationals, and I think 11% to real estate. So my point is, notice, they're not taking any big bets. Oh, and by the way, Bill, they didn't take any losses in 2008. I'm not saying this is a template. What I am saying is if we look at the mm-hmm. best and the brightest, we see different examples of how to allocate the portfolio to reduce the exposure of those severe losses and maybe see something to the, to the upside because we, we were in a place with a modest position where, let's say in 2008, it was up 30% net after all costs. Well, that would have helped abate the losses in the houses and the commercial real estate and the bonds and the stocks. So diversification and then active management. John, great, great points uh, as far as the different asset allocation, asset classes, seven asset classes. That's a tremendous number. Uh, and one question I would have for you is how often should people be looking these days? How often they sh- should they be coming back and say, hey, John, things are, you know, we've, we've just had uh, political potential changes. Uh, we have uh, interest rate changes. We have a, a, a market that just doesn't know when to quit. How often should they be coming in and re-looking at those allocations these days? Should be, they be more nimble in the past where Warren Buffett used to say, all you need is the S&P 500 in 20 years? <laughs> right. No, we've got to be more nimble. I mean, I'm, I'm submitting that this COVID thing is a disaster of epic proportions, and we do not know yet how it's unfolding. But clearly, it's not done with us, and clearly, it's changing things as we speak. So that's my point. What used to work isn't working anymore, and I'm afraid it won't work again. But that's why we want to have more places that we put some of the, you know, have seven legs underneath our portfolio stool as opposed to two or three. And then you review it as often as you need. I, I want folks to feel like I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm doing <laughs> and I know why I'm doing what I'm doing, okay? And that way, mm-hmm. the, you review it as often as you as, as, as is comfortable with you. Some people need four times a year. Some people it's two times a year. Some people it's once a year. But when we can go back, you know, like I was talking to another uh, rocket scientist and she says, geez, this was first quarter, right, when the market was off from February 19th through March 23rd, what, 30, 30? She said, John, uh, this is this is just terrible. I've never seen anything like this. And so this was a Sunday, and I said, let me call you tomorrow. And I, I said, you don't remember 2000, 2002, 2008 when the markets were off 50%. So actually, you have seen something like this. But let's look uh-huh. at your account because apparently you're looking at the news, and I want you to look at your account. How is it doing? Let's go look in real time. And now I see that in your case, the way things are set up, you're off approximately 8%. She goes, well, that's not so bad. I go, well, that's why I want you to see your 
number as opposed to get mesmerized by the news and worrying about something that doesn't pertain to you. Good point. Really good point. So, uh, you know, one question I wanted to ask you was that uh, with COVID and all the changes in the last year, were there any things that that you were surprised by as far as uh, investments doing well that you didn't think would do well or investments not doing well? What Any surprises that, that you saw in the last, let's say, year that you thought, wow, that's I, I would not have seen that coming? Well, there's one happening right now, Bill, that's kind of interesting because, you know, there was supposed to be a blue wave and maybe that has uh, dissipated. It's not going to happen. But history suggests that the markets absolutely love a divided Congress. So it doesn't matter which way it's divided. And by the way, many people would uh, assume that a Republican administration, uh, the markets do better by a very, very slim margin. The, uh, the, the history suggests that it's actually the reverse. Uh, markets do better at a Democrat administration. Now, Republicans say that's because we have to clean up their mess. But, you know, these things change. And that's what I'm saying that uh, who, who knew that tech was going to take off like it did. And it looks like in terms of uh, presidents, presidents, in terms of which stocks are going to be more in favor or not, uh, the growth stocks seem to do well under a Trump administration. I, I, I think we'll see value stocks do well under a, a, a Biden administration. So, yeah, there's we have to be you used a good word, a agile. We, we want to be like uh, those palm trees in the Hawaiian winds where they don't break, they just fold from side to side and then they snap back. But they generally don't become unrooted. And that's my, my real concern that I think a lot of folks are not prepared for what's around the corner. I think things will get nasty and it has nothing to do with the election or the administration or who's in power. Let's look at it this way, Bill. This this is it blows my mind every time I think about it. Uh, Globally, there are now more people 65 and older than five and younger. We've never been here before. So just to think it's going to be the way it was when we are in uncharted territory on more than one front, given the age of which most of us are and this COVID thing that uh, seems not to be going anywhere anytime soon, it, it, there's no place to hide. So that's why we want to make sure that we limit our exposure to risk. We understand how much loss we can accept. And then to the extent that our portfolio is holding up within those loss parameters, you can sleep well. You can have a nice day as opposed to worrying about your money. Yeah, really good point. And I think a lot of economists are are starting to say, hey, okay, we're done predicting the next couple years. Let's look out the next 10 years. Uh, there's some severe storms on the horizon as all the baby boomers in the U.S. and around the world start taking money back from the government and are not replaced by a significant number of workers supporting those payments. So who's going to pay all that money? Well, it's going to come back the taxpayers and also a lot of borrowed capital at the government level is going to start um, uh, start requiring some repayment and interest rates down the road. So is that what you're looking at when you're talking about the potential for a, a Great Depression, just the amount of, of government income that's pre uh, already spoken for in the future? 
Well, I have a couple of good sources. Harry did, did research and uh, Michio Kaku, an astrophysicist, and I had a chance to meet him and talk with him. And by the way, if you meet him or you see him, you're like, boy, I've never met an astrophysicist, but you look like the textbook version. You're, you've got to be the picture behind that word, okay? And and what both of them said, and, and they have not collaborated because I talked with both about the other, they said, look, if we look at the history, it's just a pattern that there's a depression every 80 to 90 90 years. And the way uh, Dr. Kaku put it, he says, we were absolutely on track for Depression two in 2008. We kicked that can down the road. We're not going to miss that experience. I wish it had happened in 2008 by virtue of it being then. We would have worked through it by now. And let's also understand now we are, what, 10 to 12 years older than we were then. So we don't have the same uh, occasion to have the, enough time to recover uh, like we have before. But that's part of what I'm saying. You know, it's not a about the prediction as far as I'm concerned, Bill. It's more about the preparation. Is it going to, is there going to be a depression two minutes, two years from now? I don't know, but here's another way to look at it. Peak spending uh, happens in America at age 47. So what I'm Part of what we've learned by paying for this independent research is that a lot of things happen based around age as opposed to what we think in terms of sales, for example. And just to give you a very basic example, Americans typically consume the most potato chips at age 14. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now you go back to middle school, and I can go back to middle school, and I can remember every day I had to have Lay's barbecue potato chips, and on the weekend it was two or three bags. But now it's like what one potato chip a year, and and the other side <laughs> of that equation is, yeah, as a as a parent, guess what? You bought the most potato chips in life when you had a fourteen year old in your household, which is the average age of that combination. So again, you're you're not eating them, you're not buying them. I'm just saying that a, a lot of things are driven. Driven by demographics, 31 is the age at which most Americans buy their first house. 41 is the biggest. Guess what's coming? 78 is the age, according to the Census Bureau, that most Americans sell their homes. They're over and out mm-hmm. on average 78, 79. And, and, and mm-hmm. some people say, well, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, let's just understand what will happen. One way or the other, we're coming out of those houses. <laughs> Either under your own power or you're going to be carted because <laughs> it's about 80, 85 that we typically go to heaven. <laughs> So one way or the other, we're coming out. And let's just recognize this. You know, Let's look at it from a very basic way. If 24% of the population, 76 million Americans born 1946 to 1964, spend about 20 years to go to heaven, and the inventory of real estate, for example, stays the same, and there's no reason it would not change or that it would change, okay, what happens to prices? I'm going to submit we're going to be back to what happened in the Great Depression. Prices go down of residential real estate as well as rents. And who's prepared for that when you are you know, when you own real estate and you rent it out, when you're a landlord, you're, it, you, you've only seen prices go up. You've only seen, for the most part, rents go up. You're not prepared for that kind of reversal of fortunes to happen. I think it's going to be like, by, like being on that carousel. At some point, the music will stop, and I mean worldwide, and we're all going to have to get off the carousel. Really good points, John. It's always fun to talk to you. And I know uh, I want to talk a little bit about your new book, which is called Making Finance Make Sense. Did I get that right? You sure did. Yes, it's available at Amazon. Just came out, and it's a uh, Kindle or paperback. And by the way, I found out, you know, what do they say? It better be lucky than good. Uh, apparently, the new uh, 
flavor of books is under 100 pages, we're under 100 pages. So <laughs> I'm really pleased about that. And, and let me mention, too, Bill, that uh, as a way of saying thank you to these frontline workers uh, who put so much on the line, that they put them, their lives on the line, and that they don't have the luxury of being able to work from home, right? Uh, so they give so much and receive so little. We made a, a, a decision that we were going to offer um, free financial planning to all frontline workers as a way of saying we want to support you in a way that we can, like you support us in, in the beautiful way that you do. That's terrific. That's a great give back. Uh, and it's uh, something that, of course, everybody can use these days to try to figure out uh, the best ways to, to save, allocate, and protect. Uh, and what's the, what's the best way for listeners, John, to get in touch with you to take advantage of those services and to find the book? Sure. Well, you mentioned our site, Why Be Poor. Those are three words, W-H-Y-B-E-P-O-O-R. Books available at Amazon. You can send an email to contact at whybepoor.com or give us a call at 805-495-2077, and we'll book a time. Some people want to come into the office. That's fine. Others want to be on Zoom. Typically, at about 90 minutes, we'll put together a plan in place, again, at no charge, where you can see what your goal is to make work optional, what happens in the event uh, there is a loss of a breadwinner. They, they go to heaven, and now you're trying to hold up this this uh, platform of all this stuff and all these things and all these people, and they come trumbling down. We want to have enough money in the equation so you can say, well, I'm going to miss you, but I'm not going to miss your money because I secured my future. And then, of course, we've got some college planning for people who have these kids that they're trying to educate without going into a lot of debt. That's great. So, so these days, using virtual technology, if, if that's desired, and a lot of people do desire that these days, they, in 90 minutes they can put together a plan with you, and if they're, they're frontline workers, uh, first responders and, and others, then you'll, you'll even take care of them for free, and you have the book, Making Finance Make Sense. Uh, a lot going on with you, John, and really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to update us on, on what you see. And you, make it, you explain things so nicely and clearly that uh, I think you're, everybody should really be looking at uh, buying, make, making finance make sense, not only for themselves, but for, for others um, who uh, they might want to give it to. Christmas is coming. Hey, well, yeah, there you go. Christmas There's a good idea. Coming. It's a great gift. It gives us something to talk about. It's a, it's a pretty easy read. That's the way it was written uh, because I, I'm not trying to impress the PhDs. I'm trying to get more people into the equation of, of taking the steps necessary to go, well, maybe I can do this. And now maybe the good news is COVID has given me the time to do this so I can, I'm not distracted by work and having to drive all over the country. Maybe I can take an hour and uh, then look at it once a year or whatever it takes for you, but to make sure, you know, we did one bill real quick. They're 35, uh, making 100 grand. She's making 60. He's making 40. Uh, they haven't done much in the way of savings. Uh, we give credit for the little pension, and also there's some some. Well, there's some Social Security in the equation, but the point is now they see their goal is $2.6 million, and that means they want to reach that goal by age 70. They have about 35 years to get there. What it means is setting aside 15%, 15000 from 100, getting a 7% return in 35 years. We've got 2.6. Now we know we have put behind door number one the kind of assets we need so that for the next 20 or 30 years, we have the equivalent income without having to go to work to bring home the same kind of money adjusted for inflation and taxes. 
people that know their goals uh, are much better off than people that don't, and they can really plan. They can decide, well, maybe we need to cut back. If we can't save that much, they can make those decisions, but it's really great to be able to clearly see uh, what it looks like and what they need to be doing. So you give people great peace of mind in that way, John. Thanks so much for, uh, for joining me once again, and I look forward to the next time we get a chance to speak. I do as well, Bill. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio.